It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody, welcome to Story Collider, where we present true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and as you know, today is Wednesday. <laughs> we have a special bonus episode for you this week with two stories from a very special show that we produced in Aspen last June with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. This show was about rare medical conditions and the importance of leveraging the power of patients to accelerate research and drive progress in medicine. Some of our storytellers, like me, were folks who have rare medical conditions. The two stories that we're sharing with you today are both from parents of kids with rare medical conditions. You might think you know what to expect from stories about rare disease, but I guarantee you these stories will surprise you. They might make you mad, they might inspire you, but they are definitely unlike any stories that we have ever produced before. There are some shows that stick with us, that linger in our minds for years after they're over, and this show in Aspen was one of those shows. We're so incredibly grateful to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative for giving us this opportunity. If you're not familiar with CZI, they're a new kind of philanthropy that leverages technology to help solve some of the world's toughest challenges, from eradicating disease to improving education to reforming the criminal justice system. The show is part of their initiative on rare disease. Our first story today is from Luke Rosen. It was recorded in June 2019 at the Little Nell in Aspen, Colorado. A researcher once uh, told me never to tell this story, so needless to say, I'm ecstatic to be here telling the story. Um, it was uh, almost exactly three years ago um, last month that I realized the moment that something was really wrong with um, my daughter's health. It was a, a tricky morning um, Susanna has these moments where she just leaves us. It's part of her seizure disorder. She, she just goes off and uh, leaves us for a couple of moments. And it, it was a morning where a couple of moments turned into more moments like that. And she had fallen and she split her lip open. Um, it was just a tricky morning. And so I put her in the stroller and was uh, pushing her uh, down Amsterdam Avenue uh, when her legs shot up like planks and she started screaming and crying. Um, and that was the moment that I knew something was really, really wrong. Um, so I scooped her up and I um, uh, figured out a way to get a taxi with this you know, spastic two-year-old in my arm. Um, and I left the stroller on the 
corner of Amsterdam on 110th and uh, went to the emergency room, to the hospital. And so the neurologist uh, did three things. The neurologist ordered us to get an MRI, to get an EEG, and uh, to get extensive genetic testing. So about a week later, um, my wife and I were with Susanna in the hospital. Uh, it was uh, at about five in the morning, and I really needed a break. I really felt guilty that I needed a break because, you know, Susanna is, is there, she's sleeping, and she has these, uh, she's hooked up to all these cords and all of these machines, and it, it's terrifying to, to see our daughter lying there twitching in her sleep and um, smiling. She smiled. But uh, so Susanna was sound asleep finally. And Sally, my wife, we had this, this moment of being able to take a deep breath. And it was quiet except for the beeping of the machine. Um, but I needed to, I needed a break. And so I left the, the room and I, sat down on this bench outside of the hospital room, but there was a little window so I could see inside the, the room. So I could still see Susanna lying there, twitching a little in her sleep and um, hooked up to all the, the machines. And I saw Sally was walking around the room, setting everything up. So when Susanna did wake up, she was happy and comfortable and her dolls were, uh, you know, looking at her bed and her, new clothes and pajamas were all laid out on the bed. So when she woke up, we could immediately take the clothes off that were reeking like glue from what was just put on her head for the last three days. And, and I just wanted to get back in the room. So I stood up and walked back into the room. And Sally and I had that moment again where we got to look at each other and then the door opened and this woman walked in um, carrying a clipboard and I could tell that she was very good at what she did. Like she needed a part of the skill set she needed to get this job was the ability to open up a door in a hospital room where there were two like destroyed parents looking at each other and a sleeping kid and, <laughs> and not wake the kid up. Um, and she did that very well. She walked into the room and she said, um, I'm here to, to, um, to get the ball rolling on your genetic testing. Uh, so to enroll you in the research study. And we thought, research study? What is she talking about? Oh, then we put it together. It was the genetic testing that our neurologist had ordered. Um, and so she went through... Um, the consent form with us and told us that, um, you know, how it was going to happen, how we were going to, uh, both Sally and I got our blood drawn and then they did it with Susanna and that was it. And, um, we signed the consent form and went home in a couple hours. Um, so the next three months were pretty tricky. Those three months when like shit got real those three months, you know, that was Susanna was having more seizures. She was having, starting to lose her, her vision. Um, she was falling a lot, but the thing that was incredible was our son, Nat. 
he's um uh, a couple of years he's two years older than Susanna and those three months things were so tricky for so many reasons but he really their love is so real and uh, yeah so we were waiting to hear about the genetic test to see if we were gonna get an answer for what might be happening to Susanna and weeks went by and I was calling every week to the the um, the geneticist's office. Uh, and then I was calling every day to the office saying, you know, are the, are the results back? Did you guys find anything? What's going on? And they weren't back. And no, we haven't found anything. And it was just terrifying and building and building and building. And one day I was on top of the ladder screwing in a light bulb in our hallway. And uh, Sally and the kids had had just left, and the phone rang, and I just for some reason knew that this was the, it was this woman. It was that woman who was so good at walking into the room with a clipboard and getting us to sign the consent. I just knew it was going to be her, and it was. And I said, "Hello," and she said, "Hello, Luke." And I said, "Hello, yes. How are you?" I was like, "Why the fuck did I just ask her how she was?" Like now I have to hear. Like, <laughs> um, but I did, and <clears throat> so. She said, uh, I, I said, are the, did you find anything out? Like, what were the results back from the test? And she said, um, we did. We found what we think is, is happening with Susanna, what's causing all of the problems and all of her challenges. But we can't tell you yet. And I, I was thinking, What? I'm sorry, and I remember very specifically thinking, why am I apologizing to her? Like, I'm sorry, what? You can't tell me? I had this fleeting second where I was about to get this answer that we've been looking for for months, but then you can't tell me yet? What, is, what are you talking about, lady? She said, well, if you remember in the consent form, um, because this is a research study, that if uh, something does come back that... Uh, tells us what's going on. If there's a what's called a pathogenic or a likely pathogenic disease-causing mutation, we have to send it off and have it clinically confirmed in another lab. I said, well, okay, well, do you call me back in like 15 minutes then? And um, she said, no, it's going to take a week or two. And I thought, she just called me to tell me that she knows what's wrong with Susanna, but it's going to take a week or two? I have to wait more? No way. So I hung up the phone and I just walked a couple of blocks. I said, I'm going to walk up to this guy's office, this investigator's office who's running this study, and I'm going to sit down and say, hey, listen, you really got to tell me what's going on. Come on. Are you dad? I mean, there's got to be something. There must be a mistake. And so I did. And I was walking up to the campus, and it's really tricky to get around there. It's like a maze here. And um, so I called back. I called his office. And I said, when the woman picked up, I said, hi, you know, I'm just, I'm, I wanted to come by and talk to you guys a little bit more. I'm a little turned around. I'm lost. I'm kind of confused. Tell me exactly where you guys are located. Then she hung up on me. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, maybe we got disconnected or something. And there was a, <laughs> and then there was a security guard, like right on the, on the street there. And, and I said, hey, you know, I'm going to so-and-so building. Um, can you tell me where that is? He said, yeah, it's, it's right over there. So he, I walked there, I got there, and um, 
when I got there, there were two security guards there who took my ID, asked who I was going to see, and then escorted me away from the building and said, you can't, you can't be here. Um, so I felt like there were people in this building who had an answer that we were trying to find for years, wouldn't give it to us. And not only would they not give it to us, they told me that I couldn't even be in their building. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to walk over to the neurologist's office. Right? There's a doctor who can tell me maybe. So I, I did. I walked a couple of more blocks to the hospital, went to the neurologist's office, and I walked in to a crowded doctor's office where lots of people were waiting. I went right to the, the um, reception desk, and I said, I need to talk to a neurologist. It's an emergency. And so, uh, you know, I didn't have a kid with me. So um, <laughs> where's the emergency? Um, but finally, um, a neurologist, a new neurologist who we hadn't seen came out and said, um, okay, come into my office. And she was like, I tell she was kind of, she's like pissed off and, and annoyed that I had like, you know, burst into the office and said, it's an emergency. I need to talk to somebody. Um, and she brought me in, she sat down at her desk and I sat down on the other side of her desk uh, and there was a computer in front of her. She asked me for my daughter's uh, birth date, some other information that could pull up her records or whatever. And I said, I said, you know, I'm just having trouble figuring out uh, some answers from this genetic test that we got. And the woman said, uh, or this doctor, she said, okay, let, let me look, let me look just to get you out of here. Um, and she pulled up Susanna's records and I saw her face go from agitated that this guy was, you know, in her office to very kind and a little bit scared. And then she said, let me print something out for you. And she printed out three papers and she said, we don't know much about KIF-1A, so we'll have to make another appointment where you can come back and, and talk with, with a neurologist. Uh, but here's some, here's some papers that were written about it. She handed me these papers, and I, I looked at them, and they had words like early death, like brain atrophy, um, spastic paraplegia, optic nerve atrophy, terrifying words on this research paper. And I had to leave. So I had this paper. I had an idea, a couple of initials or letters, KIF1A. So I was reading these papers as I was walking back, and I said, I have to go tell Sally, my wife, uh, what has just happened in the last four hours. So I went home, and I walked into the kitchen, and Sally was at the refrigerator, so her back was to me. And I remember thinking that there was this fleeting moment where I could turn around and go do this another time. Um, but she turned around and uh, I told her what we had just heard and we cried and hugged each other in the kitchen. And then we started researching whatever we could do to find out what AIF1A meant and these three papers and we 
Googled every investigator who was an author on those papers, and I tried to get in touch with them. And finally, a friend of a friend of a friend, you know how it goes, um, told us, you have to see this one doctor, Wendy. You have to uh, see her, contact her. So I found her email address, and I sent her an email. And 24 seconds later, she responded. And um, she said, would you like to come in tomorrow? And I can explain the implications of this disease to you. So the next day at seven in the morning, Sally and I um, went to Dr. Chung's office and we took the elevator up to um, her floor. And when the elevator door opened, there were three people there. There was a genetic counselor, a social worker, and a nurse practitioner. And Sally and I looked at each other and we said, shit. And they brought us into this family room and asked us a couple of questions. And then Dr. Chung came in. And she very clearly and very empathetically told us exactly what to expect. Um, she told us that Susanna has a mutation in her KIF1A gene that is causing a neurodegenerative disease with a progressive course. And Susanna will probably... Um, lose the ability to walk and talk and see and we don't know how long she would live there's not much known about it and a lot was going on in that room there was a lot of crying going on in that room but I could just think about one thing and I blurted it out I said How are we going to tell Nat? Our son, Susanna's older brother, how are we going to tell him? And Dr. Chung said, he is going to grow up to be a remarkable young man. And the appointment was over. Uh, but we didn't just leave like you do in every other doctor's appointment. Um, Dr. Chung walked us out of her office, got into the elevator with us, took the elevator down, walked us out onto the street, and put us in a cab, gave us a hug, and told us that she would see us soon. And thank God for that elevator because I can't imagine what that ride would have been like if it was just me and Sally. And all I was thinking about was something incredibly selfish, but I was, I was thinking, I'm never going to get to dance with my daughter at her wedding. And Sally and I 
rode the taxi back home into our new and incredibly unthinkable normal. Thank you. Luke and his wife, Sally Jackson, founded KIF1A.org in 2016 following their daughter Susanna's diagnosis. Luke has extensive experience in rare disease stakeholder engagement, advocacy, and research initiatives. Recognized by Global Genes as a 2018 Rare Champion of Hope honoree, Luke often speaks at international events about innovation and therapeutic development and about his family's rare disease journey. Luke's mission is to accelerate biotech innovation and forge efficient collaborations within the scientific and patient communities, resulting in discovery of treatment for children like Susanna. He relentlessly works to empower families affected by rare genetic diseases to play an active role in discovery, from preclinical research through clinical trial readiness and regulatory approval. Here's a fun fact about Luke. He actually lives just a few blocks away from me here in New York. So while we worked on his story, I got to meet up with him in person in our local park. And then afterwards, he invited me to come with him to pick Suzanne up from school like he does every day. And it's not often that I, as a producer, get to actually see our storytellers' lives in person. So it was a real honor to get to meet Susanna. And the second she saw Luke when we walked in, she just lit up, ran straight into his arms. In case you couldn't already tell from Luke's story, the love that this family has for each other is so big and so real. I'm just totally in awe of it. (sighs) Well... Hopefully you've had a chance to recover in time for our next story. You might need to press pause and take a minute. If so, I understand. But our next story today is from Tracy Dixon Salazar. Like our previous story, it was recorded in June 2019 at the Little Nell in Aspen and presented in collaboration with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And the theme that night was Power of Patience. So 24 years ago, I was a very young stay-at-home mom. I had two kids, a four-year-old son, Talon, and a two-year-old daughter, Savannah. And I was just living life, minding my own business. Um, My kids were great. They were not advanced. They were not behind. They were just typical kids. And one morning, I was woken up in the very early morning hours. It was still dark outside by the sound of my husband screaming my name from my daughter Savannah's room, my two-year-old. I ran in there frantic. Uh, I had no idea what was going on. And I saw him frantic as well. And I had no idea until I looked and I saw Savannah. She was laying on the bed. She was um, stiff as a board, her arms at her side and completely rigid. Her eyes were rolled up into her head and stuck there. Um, she was blue, like she wasn't getting enough oxygen. She wasn't breathing. And she had bubbles, foam, drool, something coming out of her mouth. There's um, really no words that I can use to describe how I felt in that moment. It was this old body terror that just took over every aspect, every fiber of my being, and um, I thought she was dying or dead. 
Uh, my husband shouted something like, I think she's choking, uh, go call 911. So I ran back to the bedroom and I dialed 911. I talked to the operator and she said, I want you to stay on the phone until the paramedics get here. And I said, okay, but the phone cord won't reach to the bedroom because it was that long ago. And I just wanted to get back to Savannah, but I couldn't. So I stayed on the phone and I vaguely recall shouting things to my husband, how's she doing? And then relaying it back, is she breathing? No, okay, relaying it back to the operator. And I, I remember at one point becoming so overwhelmed, so afraid, so shocked that I started to feel hot and dizzy and I had to kneel down and then I had to sit down. And then at one point I was lying face first on the cold tile floor of the bedroom with the floor here and the phone here weakly still trying to communicate between my husband and the operator, the stupid phone cord that wouldn't reach and try to stay conscious because I was so overwhelmed that my daughter was, was dead. I have uh, no idea how long it took the paramedics to get there. I remember hearing the sirens come up and getting closer. And then I remember finally getting off the phone with the operator and we ran downstairs. My husband had her in his arms and she was limp, still blue. She had saliva and mixed with blood running down her face. And as he handed her over, she took in a deep breath, like a <gasps> noise. And it was the first time that I realized that she was still alive. The paramedic took her to the living room and examined her, and she was sort of coming out of it at that point, her color returning responsive. And we described this choking incident. He said, you know, her airway is clear, and she's fine now. What you described sounds just like a seizure. And I said, what's a seizure? We had no idea. She had been completely fine, and this was out of the blue. And that was our harsh introduction into the world of epilepsy. A few weeks later, she had another seizure, and we saw the doctors. It took them six months for them to tell us that she had epilepsy, because they didn't want to label her with that horrible word. And they assured us, epilepsy is not a big deal. Even though we we're afraid to tell you that that's what it's called, it's not a big deal. She could live a normal life. Uh, she might outgrow it. There's all these famous people that have epilepsy, Prince, you know, uh, Picasso, you know, Dostoevsky, right? All these people that we just, you know, are best friends with and meet every day. <laughs> and, uh, right? And, uh, you know, and that she'll just go on medicine. There's all these medicines that can control seizures. This is not going to be a problem. And don't worry, even though she's turning blue, seizures do not damage the brain. None of that was true for us. And we lost a lot of trust in doctors after that. We felt lied to. By the time Savannah was three, so six months after the first seizure, she was having seizures every day. A good day was five to 10 seizures. A bad day was hundreds. Uh, I stopped counting after a certain point, too many to count. She was getting injured all the time, falling usually on her face from the seizures. And delays in her development were becoming very, very apparent because of all the seizures that she was having as they did damage the brain. And everything we tried, drugs, diets, devices, alternative therapy, supplements, vitamins, we even considered brain surgery. She wasn't a candidate. 
no, we're sorry, Mrs. Salazar, your daughter's not a candidate for brain surgery. We didn't know whether to be devastated or relieved, but nothing worked. By the time she was five, uh, we got yet another diagnosis. She had evolved into something called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, or LGS. This is a rare pediatric epilepsy syndrome. It's a group of symptoms um, that have a really horrific prognosis. The prognosis is continued seizures, progressive intellectual disability, and premature death. And we still had no idea why. During all this time, we became prisoners in our own home on purpose because it was just easier. We spent all our time trying to keep this kid safe, try to keep a, a young kid who's active and mobile and perfectly typical, who's having seizures all the time from not running around. If there was a brick fireplace within a five-mile radius, her face would find it. And I remember asking the doctors, what happened? She was fine. She wasn't advanced. She wasn't delayed. What happened? It was out of the blue. And they said, well, no. Well, most people with epilepsy don't know the cause. So welcome to the majority. Congratulations. You know, it was so dogmatic the way they said it. And I have heard a lot of really dumb things in my life. But that didn't make any sense, especially in light of all of the things that she had tried and failed. And I said, what if we knew what caused it? Then maybe we could treat that. And it was as if nobody was looking. And so this is when I started reading scientific papers about what could cause epilepsy. I would go to the library and check out internet time for an hour. That's how long ago this was. And I would get whatever papers were on the internet back then, usually things that were really old and obscure. And I had no idea what the hell I was reading. Um, I thought, uh, I just want to know what causes epilepsy. I don't understand this. I need to go to college and take some English classes. I hadn't done well in high school. I had never been to college, but I have to go take some English classes because I need to understand this. It turns out that my English is fine and that scientific papers are not in English. <laughs> and it's a whole different language. And medicine is yet a third language. And so I enrolled in some scientific classes, and I fell in love with the subject. I specifically fell in love with genetics. Here were these things called genes that turn on and off in synchrony across brain development. And they regulate everything from your color of your hair to what you look like to how you behave. And this was something, finally, out of everything that I'd heard, everything that I'd read, that could explain why I had a healthy kid one day and why I didn't. And so I stayed in school. I stuck with it. I kept at it. I couldn't help my kid, but damn it, I could study. And so every seizure she had, I would study harder. I wanted to quit um, all often with school. I always thought, like every day I'd go, I'm going to have to quit tomorrow because I'm not going to be able to juggle all this. I mean, LGS is a lot. And, and then life. Life is just a lot without all the seizures. But my husband wouldn't let me. And our journey up until that point wouldn't let me. I couldn't help Savannah, but I could try to help the next generation of Savannahs. It could not be this bad for the next group of families. So I just stayed in school. Uh, despite the urging of many of our family, my family members that thought I should be at home 
taking care of my daughter. And four years later, I got my associate's degree. I did mention I hadn't done well in high school. It took a long time to remediate. Uh, three years after that, I got my bachelor's. Two years later, I got a master's. And 12 years from the very time I started school, um, I earned a PhD studying neuroscience and genetics. Okay. I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship in UC San Diego, where I had done all my training. And guess what? Genes play a huge role in early life epilepsies. My job was to find genes in kids just like my daughter. And we did. We found more than 100. I was part of this global team. I was this one tiny piece. And when we found the genes, we'd tell the families. Making it better, I hope, for the next generation. I wish I could tell you that things were great back home. They weren't. Savannah was a mess. She was having seizures every day, still. Uh, she was having about 75 seizures a week. And she was going into these nonstop seizures weekly where they wouldn't stop on their own. So we would intervene. We'd have to intervene with emergency rescue therapies. And this started with a rectally administered drug at home. And when that didn't work, we would take her to the emergency room where she would get intravenous drugs. And when that didn't work, the doctors would put her into a medically induced coma. And that was our life. And so this caused me to, to study a lot harder. Um, but there was no relief for her. And everything we tried, uh, all the drugs and everything, just didn't work. By the time she was 18, the seizures had done, done so much damage to her brain that she was the mental age of a three to four-year-old. At that time, she was on a special diet, one device, seven different anti-seizure medicines, of which we have no idea how they interact, with horrific side effects, everything from cosmetic side effects like overgrown gums and excessive facial hair to the more severe side effects such as increased seizures, worsening and psychotic behaviors, liver failure, kidney failure, horrible side effects. And we really had no hope. I remember I was leaving work one day and I ran into my postdoc advisor in the hall and he just casually asked me how Savannah was doing. Poor guy. <laughs> and I burst into tears. Now, I didn't ugly cry. But, uh, but if there is a hell for postdoc advisors, I'm pretty sure it's one of your, your postdocs bursting into tears when you're talking to them. And he said, very calmly, he said, you know, we should sequence Savannah's DNA and look at her genes. He goes, we do that here in the lab. Now, we've done it. I mean, this is your job, Tracy. We've done it in families that have only had a family history of epilepsy up to this point, and Savannah doesn't have that. But maybe we'll find something. And I said something like, okay, that's a great idea. So we did. We sequenced Savannah, myself, my husband, and my son. And we did the analysis, and we didn't find a damn thing. None of the more than 100 genes that had been identified at that point were mutated in my daughter. 
This actually really wasn't surprising. Uh, those of us living with LGS are pretty used to getting our hopes up about a new therapy or a new test and then utterly being punched in the gut again by LGS when we don't see any results from it. So we go through life with 1% cautious optimism and 99%, yes, yeah, isn't going to work. So don't get your hopes up. But I kept at it. Every time a new analysis tool would come out by the scientist, every time I would learn something else about brain development, every time Savannah would have a particularly day, bad day and I was having difficulty coping, I would reanalyze her data. And one day I analyzed it in a way I now have deemed crazy mother analysis. I'm hoping that someone will uh, claim that and rename it something different later, but very scientifically valid. I took all of the mutations that she had that were unique to her and predicted to be altering her or her gene and her protein in some way. All of us are walking around with about 300 of these unique mutations. Um, and I took them and I grouped them into signaling pathways. And there was a specific signaling pathway that had a huge number of genetic mutations in it. It's a calcium signaling pathway. And what this pathway does is it lets calcium go into and out of cells. And in brain cells, it's crucial for brain cells being able to talk to each other. Calcium goes in, electrical activity happens, and brain cells talk to each other. And this immediately reminded me when I saw this pathway that every time that Savannah would go on the vitamin calcium supplement, she would have horrific seizures. Now, she always had horrific seizures, so if I'm saying she's having horrific seizures, these are really bad. And so we got to the point where we wouldn't allow her to be on calcium anymore. And I began to dig. There was, we were on to something here, something crazy, but still. And I began to dig into each of her unique genetic variants, and I became more and more convinced that she had too much calcium going into her cells based on the data. Her cells were talking to each other. They were screaming at each other and there was just too much activity and so the next question was is there any kind of drug out there that could quiet these cells calm them down decrease the amount of calcium that was going in and I found in the literature that there was there was an FDA approved drug on the market it was used for high blood pressure not epilepsy and it acted on several of the exact genes that Savannah had in her that were mutated. And I said, we have to try this. We had really no hope. We didn't really have anything that we hadn't tried. At that point, Savannah had tried and failed 26 different things. And we may as well have just been throwing darts at a board because there was no rationale or no data for why we should try the 27th thing. So I gathered up my data and I marched over to her pediatric neurologist's office and I said, we need to put her on this drug. Here's the data. He says, I don't understand any of this genetic stuff here, but I'm on this drug for my high blood pressure, which I probably gave him. <laughs> he said, yeah, it's, you know, it's a drug. It's been around for decades. We know a lot about it. It's pretty benign. Let's try it. He said, let's run some tests to just check her out and try it. So we put her on this drug, and within two weeks, much to everyone's surprise, especially ours, she started to get better. She went from having 75 seizures a week to having about two or three 
only at night. And those trips to the emergency room, those comas, those seizures completely stopped. So if you're near wood, knock on it right now because that's just what we do. We were dumbfounded. We, didn't, we were so afraid that this was not real or that someone was going to hear and then we were going to lose the control and you know, be struck down by the LGS gods that we didn't talk about it for a year. We didn't tell anyone. The only people that knew were us and the family, the physician, not even my postdoctoral advisor knew, and he had sequenced her. We finally told him, and he's like, of course, like, we should publish this, right? Which is what every postdoc advisor says, right? That was eight years ago. Savannah is 26 years old now, and she continues to have a 95% reduction in all of her seizures and a 100% reduction in her nonstop seizures that would send her to the hospital. And she's growing and developing again. She is walking and talking. Uh, she just learned uh, to buckle her seatbelt about two years ago, to Ziploc closed a Ziploc bag, and to use a key in a door, God help us. And while she still talks at a, uh, the intelligibility of a two-year-old, she can talk like nobody's business. Talk, talk, talk. This kid talks so much. Sasses us, which we mostly love. Okay, we love it. We love it. And she's growing and developing again. And if you had told me that after 16 years of daily horrific I just can't even find the words to tell you how awful it was, seizures, that the 27th thing that we tried would have changed our lives as much as it has, I wouldn't have believed you. No way. But it happened. I think Savannah's story inspired her doctor and other researchers what could happen if you targeted a specific medicine to the genes. And when I reflect back on this whole journey, well, people ask me, how did you do it? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't see my husband for 12 years. Like, I had the day shift. He had the night shift. He'd come home, and he'd be like, I'm your husband. And I'd be like, show me some ID. I don't believe you. You know, I, I, we made a difference. We helped some other families find their genes. And, and somehow in all of this, we helped our own kid. I'm shocked. And I promise you, everyone in my high school class who thought I was the least likely to do anything is shocked. Most of the time, I'm really grateful. This life that we have is so different. We venture out of the house sometimes now. We're not prisoners anymore. Here, I'm here. Savannah is so happy and really is living her best life. Other times, I try not to go here too often, I think, what if? What if we had found this when she was three? Would she be typical? Would she not have suffered so much brain damage? She'll never live independently now from all the brain damage, but what if we had found it earlier? And you know, if you think about it too long and too hard, you really shouldn't have to get a PhD to figure out what's wrong with your kid. 
and to do the research yourself to find the medicine behind the science and then convince the physicians to try that. You really shouldn't. But a mom's got to do what a mom's got to do and patients got to do what they got to do until science and medicine catch up and we'll just keep doing it. Thank you. That was Tracy Dixon Salazar. Tracy is a neuroscientist, geneticist, and patient advocate. She did her PhD in postdoctoral work at UC San Diego, where she studied the mechanisms of brain development and synaptic plasticity, identified genetic causes of rare disorders in children, and researched precision therapeutics in stem cell and animal models of pediatric disease. She is an accomplished scientist, proven thought leader, highly sought-after speaker, and staunch advocate for genomic medicine, patient-centric research, and patient engagement. I just want to say a really heartfelt thank you to Tracy and Luke and our other two storytellers at night, Megan and Dawn, for sharing these transformative stories with us. I'm just totally in awe of every one of them and so grateful to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative for giving us this opportunity. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were both from a show produced by me, Aaron Barker, with help from Liz Neely, Genesis Renji, and Michaela Agabiu. The podcast is edited by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders, with help from editors Jen Quinn and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Little Nell and the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative for hosting these shows and to these incredible, fierce parents. Thanks for listening. <laughs>